you know, when I when I went to 3M, uh, you know, I had to realize there was one of me. I was the first outsider the company had ever had, and there was eighty five thousand of uh, of everybody else. And uh, I think you've got to take the point of view that even though you you're coming in, the company is struggling. The board has given you a lot of power. I think to sustainably change a culture and to keep the team with you, you've got to connect with all 85,000 of them and don't abuse the privilege of the power you've been given. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader, Jim McNerney, former CEO of both Boeing and 3M. Yeah, it was a really great interview about leading with both humility and humor. Yeah, something Jim has definitely a lot of both of. Uh, so here's a quick uh, bio of Jim. Jim McNerney was the CEO and chairman of the Boeing company. Before that, he served as a CEO and chairman of the board of 3M. He spent 19 years rising through the ranks at GE, the General Electric Company, holding executive positions in various divisions like aircraft engines, lighting, Asia Pacific, electrical distribution, on and on and on. Uh, prior to that, he worked early on at McKinsey and Company and, of course, started his career at Procter & Gamble. He has served on the boards of P&G, Boeing, IBM. He's active in numerous other boards and trustees. And he was appointed by President Barack Obama to serve on the Kennedy Center Board of Trustees and prior to that, the President's Export Council. Yeah, what I love about Jim's resume is there's just this really good mix of business, industrial technology, and, and even the arts throughout his entire career. And the arts is something that he was uh, he's always been kind of passionate about and helped to to work on. So I'm curious, Roman, are you are you an artistic person? Yeah, believe it or not, I actually am. You know, my dad, he's an architect. And I actually, growing up, I wanted to be a graphic designer or an architect like him. But sadly, uh, yeah, I instead studied engineering. Um, but you know, what's interesting is I, I did web design on the side for like beer and travel money. And that's actually what got me my job at P&G. When I was finishing my MBA, they saw <laughs> that I did, that I did, you know, graphic and web design. And they were like, hey, there's this new digital thing. You want to come do it? So, so was, was it because you were good at web design or was it because you were kind of entrepreneurial and we're like, we like that you made beer money through this? Like, what was, what about the web design was like, okay, this is a good fit for PNG. Hey, kids, here's a tip for you. Just put internet on your resume. That's all you need to know. Um, it, it was a mix of all those things, I think. But, um, you know, they were really seeking a digital transformation. I was in the early class of early interactive and digital marketing managers. But Drew, what about you? Are, are you an artistic guy? Uh, I mean, I, I cannot draw. And I think a lot of times when people think of the arts, they immediately go to drawing. And I'm not good at, I can kind of do stick figures. I blame it on being left-handed. The reason why I can't draw, because whenever I would try to draw growing up, I would smudge the like either ink or the, you know, 
pencil graphite or even the you gotta put a sheet of paper you gotta put a sheet of paper under your hand when you're going that's a pro tip for you yeah (laughs) see i didn't i didn't know the pro tip but no i i started doing improv and stand-up comedy in university and college and so that's kind of my aspect of the art is is trying to make people laugh either through improv or or stand-up well and you're still pretty active in your in both your day job but just on the side in new york city right yeah, I mean, it's something, I don't know, I think of, I think of comedy as kind of like math with words. <laughs> like, it's kind of, it's like a logic problem. It's like, if this plus this, you know, maybe equals laughter. And so, and certainly, you know, based on on the company, the the work that we do, I stay up to date on it, teaching other people about how to do it, have to stay up to date on it. But it is also just something so much fun. I don't know, there's something addicting about, and maybe you, you experience this from a, an arts perspective of like having a finished product, but there's something about hearing uh you know someone laugh because of a joke that you told it that's very kind of addicting and rewarding you're such a humor engineer oh my god <laughs> i'm such such a made-up job title of humor engineer but i feel like you know something that talking with jim I, he was appreciative of when we he and i chatted before and after the the recording because jim talked a lot about humor as a valuable skill for building a positive workplace culture and for staying humble. And I think in the interview, that's one of the things that I really appreciate. You look at the resume and it seems so easy to kind of get like a, uh, a big ego about everything, but still very humble. He said that was a big piece to his success when he was working with different organizations and also something that he had to be able to manage because it's no secret he was up for the uh, kind of in the running for the GE CEO spot and he didn't get it. And in the interview, he talks about his strategy for how he managed that and essentially gave himself a weekend. But it's 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 a fascinating kind of look into how do you manage the ups, but also the downs of of career and success. Yeah, I think it's something we, we started to uncover in a lot of these conversations, kind of not just the successes um, that these executives are facing, but it's not all wins and, and how they deal with the wins and this perseverance. And another thing I really liked about your conversation with Jim is he talks about coming in as an outsider to, you know, companies like 3M and Boeing, these huge like industrial technology institutions in our, in the fabric of our culture and having to, to, to adjust into a new culture and even evolve the culture. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the culture change is something that he talked a lot about. And that's, again, one where humility comes back into play, that he couldn't come in as someone that was like all knowing, but still had to learn. And that's what he said about culture change is he said it wasn't, you know, the values that you write up and post on a wall, but rather that culture change happens one conference room at a time. And I think people are really going to enjoy his uh, his perspective, his stories, his insight that he shared. So I'm excited for people to take a listen. So let's uh, jump right into our conversation with Jim. You know, many already know your professional story. Graduate of Yale and Harvard, started your career at P&G, went to McKinsey, went through leadership development at GE, then CEO of 3M, then at Boeing. Now you're here at uh, Clayton Dubalier and Rice uh, in an advisor capacity. You're on a number of boards. And I'm just curious, is that, is that kind of the career you imagined as a kid? Like when you were, when you were 10-year-old Jim, did you know what you want to be? Was it like leader at all of these places? Um, I, I'm not sure it was uh, perfectly, perfectly formed, uh, but I was, you know, I was born a Midwestern striver. I wanted, I wanted to do things. I wanted to make a difference. Uh, I wanted to lead in some form or fashion. Exactly what shape that took, I wasn't sure. But I, I had, I had a view that I wanted to make a difference, and I wanted to lead people. 
I had that figured out. Yeah, well, and it, it, yeah, I mean, looking back at the career, it looks like that has been accomplished. And so you go to Yale and I've, I've you know, read in a couple of places that uh, you excelled in, in baseball and hockey, which, first of all, those two sports seem pretty different to me. I don't know. Like, I guess the, the comparison is that you're swinging a stick in both. Yeah, I don't know, but like, yeah, yeah I mean that that is one that is one parallel. Although I was a pitcher, but <laughs> I, I think the, the the big thing is that they were complementary seasons. They were oh. at least back in the day when I grew up. Now all sports go all the time, but back then there was definite seasonality, and it was baseball and hockey were perfectly complementary. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, I did uh, I did soccer and I wanted to do golf, but it happened at the same time as as soccer, so I just yeah. chose one. So you're right, complementary season. And but do you do you feel like you like sports in some way helped later in your career developing teamwork because you did at one point win the John Wooden uh, John Wooden uh, leadership award? Do you think there were some parallels there or was it just kind of, you know, coincidence that you win something known for a, a historic, incredible coach, but within the leadership space? Yeah, no, I think the, the sports, uh, particularly people of my generation, sports were a big influence, particularly uh, team sports. And I, I think it's fair to say that it's an environment where you have to earn your way, uh, where you are either a member of the team that that helps others succeed or succeed yourself altogether. It's bigger than the sum of the parts. I think you learn that in a very early age in team sport environments. And uh, I think those are very important lessons for a business career or leading any kind of significant institution. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably why we have a number of, you know, cliches and phrases and terminology related to sports, you know, uh, hitting a home run or, or, things going well, et cetera. So you're at, you know, prior to, to Yale and Harvard, were you, did you have jobs that you're doing? Do you remember the first way that you earned money or was that yeah. the first kind of thing at P&G? <laughs> well, it's funny you ask. I was, uh, I described myself earlier as a Midwestern striver. I would mm -hmm. add, I would modify that with, with Midwestern hustler when I was a young, <laughs> when I was Young guy, I, I did everything from working on ranches in Colorado for 17 cents an hour to, to teaching sailing uh, on Lake Michigan. I, uh, I, you know, the proverbial paper boy, I had a paper route. I, I did all of those things. And, and that was characteristic of people in the 50s and 60s. That's the way we were, that's the way we were brought up. And again, uh, having to, to eat what you kill is an important lesson at an early age. Yeah, absolutely. And so, is, and is that what? So the the money that you were earning was it partly as a way to, uh, you know, sustain yourself, your family? Was it more of like you were then saving up so that you could play some of these sports and get like the new baseball glove and things like that? What were you like spending the hard earned money on as that Midwestern hustler? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I overstated it a bit. I was very <laughs> fortunate to to grow up in a in a well well to do, reasonably well to do family. So it wasn't a matter of putting food on the table. It was more a sign of achievement. It was more mm -hmm. learning. It was more buying that baseball glove. It was more contributing to my college education, even though uh, the majority of, of that was handled by my parents. But it was more achievement, contribution, uh, self-image, more, mm -hmm. more things like that, I would say. 
Well, and I imagine also giving you a a certain work ethic that then I would imagine translates later because, you know, it's clear that okay, you go to Yale and then you're like, okay, Yale's not enough. I'm going to go to Harvard then, right? Get your MBA. Uh, yeah. So like clearly like high achieving. And then you start at, at Procter & Gamble after graduating from Harvard in, in Ivory Soap. And was that role, was that kind of first assignment that you had starting there? Was it kind of what you expected? Was it like, yep, this, I've got this and kind of, you know, everything was great or was it a little bit different than what you were thinking once you graduated? No, I think it was, it it was, it was about what I expected. I mean, I was, uh, I was interested more in the marketing side of the equation than the financial side of the equation. Uh, I was interested in joining a company that had a good culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of politics where, uh, along these lines aren't perfect, but was more of a meritocracy than not a meritocracy and where, and where there were good people and P and G amongst the, uh, the options that I was uh, fortunate enough to have when I graduated, uh, sort of fit that bill. And, uh, and, and it was about as advertised. It was, a, it was a high, high performing high team, you, you get what you deserve kind of place. And I enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. It speaks back to that. Like you said, the meritocracy component of it being important, that work ethic component of like, okay, if I can put in the work that, and I do succeed that you can find, you know, success in, in that work. And as you mentioned, the people, that's part of the reason why the, the PNG alumni podcast exists or the, even the network exists is that you know, there's a certain caliber of people that that tend to go through PNG, and so when we can connect with them and, and learn with them, learn from them, I think there's tremendous value from that. So you spend a little bit of time at PNG, then you go on to McKinsey, uh, and then to GE, and you go through kind of their famed leadership track. and And PNG and GE are known for their their leadership development. What was it that you learned? At either PNG or McKinsey or GE, that kind of informed how you were a leader later. Any kind of core things that that you took away from those experiences? Well, I think um, the reason I was drawn to those places uh, was was the competitive nature of them. I mean, there were there were good people there. I knew I would be tested. Uh, I knew I had to be good. Uh, I would be pushed. All things that I wanted. Yet, yet I also, it was beginning to dawn on me. I knew it intellectually, but I, it really began to dawn on me through my experiences that that individual success is largely gained through effectiveness with teams and with others. And uh, it's that interplay between your own contribution and making others better when you can and allowing them to make you better when that's the way it works. Those were places where you learn that because you're not you're not dominating people. They're as good as you are. You're not smarter than they are. You're 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 not you're not a more a better natural leader than they are. And so, I think one of the lessons for me, in particularly early career, is 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 join a place that is competitive, that has good people, where you learn what good is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in a way, you're you're inspired by. Or motivated by others' people's success. If there's other ambitious people around you who are having success, and you want to kind of uh, keep up with them, kind of in that way, or you're you're building each other up, kind of in that that sense. It seems absolutely. like absolutely, 
And so how do you, but how do you kind of get that effectiveness from other people? Like at PNG, one of the things, and, and this I learned later, because I, I started my career at PNG as well. I didn't realize not every place is like on a first name basis, right? Like, you know, whether you're CEO or whoever, it was everyone's first name. Like, is it as simple as like calling people by their first name and building that type of culture? Like, how do you actually create a, a culture or a team or an organization where there is that effectiveness together as opposed to success as an individual? Well, it's, it's the kind of thing, uh, learning how to be a teammate, learning how an effective teammate, learning how to lead others in a team context, I think is only gained through experience, through real live experience, doing things that matter together, making mistakes as you do it learning from those mistakes, uh, be overreaching every now and again, not being the teammate in retrospect that you wish you'd been. Uh, mm-hmm. And you go through it, and if you, you develop a self-awareness, you get some altitude on yourself. And, but there's really no shortcuts there. And that's mm-hmm. why, and it's one of the reasons why joining a place like P&G is very important because you're forced onto high-pressure high-performing teams in the case of a brand or a region or a, an R&D team in a decentralized company like P&G, young people are given that, that, uh, that opportunity and that pressure early. And so you've got to learn from it. And some people do and, and, and some people don't. But there's no shortcuts on that one, Drew, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember an experience with at, at PNG, a, a coworker telling me about it that they went through something and based on how they had done things, it ended up costing the company like, you know, $200,000 in delays or something like that. And he was yeah. so worried about losing his job. And his manager was like, why would we fire you now? We just, you know, we just invested $200,000 in you learning. Right. They didn't see it as like a this huge failure that you should be fired from, but this was now a learning experience that you're going to grow from and now you're going to be that much better in the future. And I think, you know, the, the the companies that I was fortunate to be involved with early were companies that saw it exactly that way. I mean, there's the apocryphal story at, at GE where where Jack Welch early in his career <laughs> blew blew up a, a chemical factory. He was a he was a PhD uh, chemical engineer and and blew blew the wing off a factory and and it, it was taken as constructively as what you just described was taken. And companies with good cultures uh, use those as teaching uh, aids and learning aids. Companies with lousy cultures figure out a way to blame people for things. People are afraid that they're going to get blamed for it. And that's why starting in a place that has that, those cultures, that right culture and that, and the values that underpin it is really important. Absolutely. And so from, from GE, you then go on to uh, be CEO of 3M and then later on to Boeing. So you're in these positions to start to, you know, influence the culture. And so was that part of what you sought to create in those cultures? And, and if so, whichever kind of mindset you had, like, how do you create the right type of culture? Is it simply kind of listing out the right values and posting them in the wall, on the wall? Or how do you build this, you know, environment where people are comfortable with, you know, if they make a mistake, that it's not going to be the end of the world, or, you know, that, that, yeah. that you create this environment where you, you, they can succeed in that way? Yeah, you do it three times in a row, however. <laughs> you, you also want the accountability piece of the culture and balancing that is the trick. Mm-hmm. But no, you're, you're, you're correct. I mean, I think 
in the case of both uh, 3M and, and Boeing, I, I came in as an outsider. And the biggest, the biggest challenge I had in both cases was cultural. I mean, these were strong companies. The X's and O's part of the job was, you know, was difficult to be sure. You had to figure out what to do strategically and what to focus on and how to re- allocate resources. But the harder part of the job is what you just talked about, uh, is, the, is the cultural reformation, I guess mm-hmm. you would say, in both cases. These were both companies that, that had, had had tremendous success. And as is usually the case, success is a breeding ground for uh, cultures becoming stale, where things on the inside become more important than things on the outside, and it becomes bureaucratic. And, uh, and there's a little bit of that in both 3M and Boeing. And, and you asked the important question, which is how do you, how do you uh, attack it? Because there's a lot of good in both those companies, mm-hmm. but there was a lot that had become dysfunctional. And there's, again, it's a no shortcuts message. I mean, how do you change a culture? My answer is one conference room at a time. I mean, you, you not only have to come up with a way to, to express your view of reality and how you want people to respond to it, but you've got to let them talk to you because they're, they, believe it or not, they want the culture to change as badly as you do. And uh, so it's, uh, it's a matter of digging in with everybody and, and uh, changing a culture takes a long time and, and getting started can often take a year or two. And, and, uh, but it's important, and, and and this goes back to starting with the right companies. You you do know what good looks like, and uh, so you you do have a blueprint in your mind of of the kind of things you're aiming for. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and it seems even more challenging since you said as you like that you were an outsider coming, and it wasn't like you know P and G has kind of the promote from within culture. GE has yeah. has components of that as well, but you come into 3M, you come into Boeing as this, this external person. And then when it, when I was doing some research, but some of the quotes that people shared about you is, you know, you developed your reputation as a skilled team, uh, as a skilled team builder, uh, that your sincerity focus and decisive hands-on style were key factors. Um, you know, specifically people talking about your time at 3M, they cited your low key style and lack of arrogance as important factors in success. And I guess my question is why, why kind of that low key style or why that, you know, why a focus on sincerity and building team is that, was that all from a a culture perspective to try to build that, that type of culture you're seeking? Well, I mean, that's an element of it. I mean, I think the, that humility is an important component and, uh, of connecting with people and, uh, overwhelming them. Uh, even if you are in a position to do so, may create a short-term win, but doesn't create a long-term bond. And I, you know, when I when I went to 3M, uh, you know, I had to realize there was one of me. I was the first outsider the company had ever had, and there was eighty-five thousand of uh, of everybody else. And and uh, I think you've got to take the point of view that. Even though you, you're coming in, the company is struggling, the board has given you a lot of power, I think to sustainably change a culture and to keep the team with you, you've got to connect with all 85,000 of them and don't abuse the privilege of the power you've been given. And so uh, yet at the same time, you've got to be decisive, make decisions, you know, there's a balance, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think the extent to which you can if if you can 
find a way to influence people positively, to draw the best out of them rather than to pound the best into them, I think you'll be more successful over over time. And it's um, that style that you described, which is usually true, not always, but uh, that is uh, born out of a style that I was that I came with, but also a realization that I ha- I had to play the long game in both cases. Yeah, and I really like that articulation of drawing success out of people as opposed to pounding it into them. Like you said, yeah. it's you know if you overwhelm people, maybe it works for a short period of time, but not the you know the long term, which I think is great. And you mentioned humility as as part of that component. And uh, I also I, I noticed um, uh, I saw a video where you were. It was a uh, for the uh, John Wooden Award. There were you know friends of yours and people that had worked with you put together kind of a. Um, a video that was talking about you, and one of that one that really stood out to me was uh, from Ursula Burns talking about your time when you were chairman of the President's Export Council, uh, appointed by Barack Obama. Then, what she noticed, which one incredible kind of appointment, cool that you're you know serving in that way, which we'll talk a little bit about kind of politics and uh, yep. business a little bit later. I have a question about that, but uh, here she specifically noted your sense of humor as a way to get work done in a fun and effective way. And so I'm, I'm a little bit biased by that because I'm, you know, my background is engineering and then started doing improv and stand up and, you know, oh. find myself the corporate humorist, the PNG at one point. And that's kind of my, my focus, yeah. but yeah, I'm yeah. curious from your perspective, why is humor valuable in an organization? Well, it, you know, you've got to keep things serious. I mean, it, Business leadership ultimately is a contact sport, and you are measure your performance is measured. Okay, but because it is a contact sport, you've got to keep things informal. I mean, you've got to you've got to maximize the lubrication between individuals who are already trying as hard as they can and are uh, already stressed out to a certain degree because you're holding them accountable for things. So, but you've got to create an environment that uh, where the task is serious. But the way you go about it, there has to be an element of fun and, and social lubrication where people feel at ease and where they'll share with each other and where where they will reach out to one another as opposed to be worried about one another. And, and humor is is a natural. I mean, I think I think I developed that, you know, back in uh, sports teams uh, where you know, it was, you had the same kind of environment where highly accountable for either winning or losing yet hey guys let's figure out a way to have some fun while we're doing this because we're going to do it better if we do yeah absolutely i like that that articulation of it being a a lubricant right it's it's it doesn't mean that the work itself isn't serious or important but it can be a way to to manage that process and so in what ways did you did you find that you were using humor was it you know, very set and intentional? Was it more of just through conversational? Was it, you know, making sure that you started every single joke with or every single meeting with a bunch of jokes? Like, how, how did you incorporate your humor into... It was more, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't think it was as consciously applied as that. But I think I, I, if you look back on it, or if I look back on it, I think it was during times when things were getting stressful, when people were beginning to poke at one another, where we weren't finding answers as quickly as we needed to, where we were frustrated, 
I think it, it tended to be there that I would try mm-hmm. to break what otherwise could be sort of a bit of a downward spiral in either the conversation, the meeting, or the setting, and, and try to try to use it there to provide some perspective. And uh, that's where it tended to pop out more. Although I did start a lot of meetings with some <laughs> with some some fun things that had happened during the week just to loosen everybody up. I, I was guilty of that every night. Yeah, which I think can be a great way to get, you know, uh, stories that maybe are related in some way to what you're talking about, or it's exactly. keeping the the fun piece to it. And I think, you know, I, you know, if you look at your career from PNG to McKinsey to GE to 3M to Boeing, none of those necessarily, you know, none of them are a, a Southwest. None of them are a, uh, or even like a Google words. It's part of the, you know, ethos or Zappos or something like that. Uh, but it does seem like, Oh, there's still value because it is what you talked about of like the humility and the the human piece of it is that there's there's a role for it to play in some way, regardless kind of the work that you're doing in a way. Yeah, totally agree. Very cool. And so, right. So, mention the the uh, present exports council. You've also in your your time as an executive in other places, you've won a number of awards. So, CEO of the year by Chief Executive Magazine, Wilson Center's Woodrow Wilson Award for Corporate Citizenship. You have an honorary Doctor of Science degree from Cranfield University. Is there, first of all, I guess, uh, any particular award that you're you're proudest of having received? Uh Gee, I never, I never thought in those terms. Although, you know, the the John Wooden Award is a tough one not to like. I mean, he he was the ultimate coach and uh, molder of teams, and uh, and so I, quite frankly, had had forgotten about that one until you just mentioned it. <laughs> but that one meant a lot at the time, and uh, really uh, represented things that I aspired. I viewed myself as much of a coach as a manager, and I think that's why that award was was very meaningful to me. Yeah, it's and there's a, there is a fantastic video that I encourage people to check out. That is people talking about um, what was it their experiences with you that they they felt were were aspects of why you won the award. But I'm curious from your perspective, you know, is, is it that, that coach mentality, but what was, what was it about your style that led to whether it was that award award in particular, but, or the, the number of other awards that you've won, what, what led to them? Well, I, I think in, in terms of that award, it was, wouldn't was famous for bringing out the best and everybody uh, yet at the same time winning. Okay. In other words, bringing out the best in everyone, was not an exercise in making everyone over in your image. It was rather an exercise in building the strongest team that would win. Okay. And that I always had an enormous amount of respect for. And uh, there's a lot of people who can impact others, but not always in a way that configures the strongest team. So I think that was a big one. I mean, I think the, uh, the chief executive of the year award had, had a long list of people that I uh, admired who had won that award. So I was very pleased to win that award, I guess, and uh, have the trophy somewhere up in my closet. And now, a word from our sponsor. We're talking today to Ed Tazia. He's the chairman and co-founder of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community enrichment and philanthropy and the production organization of this particular podcast. So we're uh, especially excited to have you here. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Drew. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I'm curious, how did this whole alumni thing get started? Where did it come from? Well, I grew up in multiple places. Uh, for years, uh, former Proctor folks had been getting together fairly casually uh, in some markets, particularly retirees would be very involved. In Europe, that happened a lot, for example. But back in 2000, um, a group of uh, alumni got together in Chicago for a bit of a reunion. Uh, a brand new CEO named A.G. Laffley was invited to attend and he did. And it changed everything because it changed the relationship between the company and its alumni. Uh, out of that, a group of us got together about four or five months later and uh, <laughs> named ourselves the board of directors and started the, uh, the, the, the P&G Alumni Network back in yeah, January of uh, 2001. And, and what was the, the prompt or the reasoning for formalizing it a little bit more as opposed to keeping it just more of a casual, like, hey, let's get together? What was the thinking behind, no, let's create ourselves board of directors beside, you know, like, get, was it just to get a title? Or I imagine it was probably for a more specific reason. Well, you know, <laughs> you can't put a lot of Proctor people in a room without somebody writing a strategy. So, the original thinking was, we want to make it easy for alumni to reconnect, whether that's for personal reasons or business reasons. What was clear long before there was an alumni network was that if you picked up the phone and, or, or met somebody who had been a proctor person, there was an instant connection and people would go out of their way to help you. We wanted to facilitate that. Yeah. The second thing we agreed to do from the very beginning in our mission was to give back to the communities in which our, our members lived and worked. And that's just inherent in the values of people who have joined this company. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's kind of what you see in the extension of what all the network does. Tell me a little bit more about the network. What, what all does it entail? Well, the network's made up of, uh, you know, there's a global group that kind of organizes around uh, some basic principles and it provides some basic tools for the chapters. But we clearly understood after the very first global event in 2003 that it wasn't going to be much of, a, of an organization if we only met every two years with three or four or five hundred people. So we started to develop uh, a chapter model and now we've got chapters and probably uh, three or four dozen cities around the world and those chapters are really quite independent it's a bit of a confederation each of those has its own board they come together with their own ideas some are very very active Cincinnati is very very active Geneva is very active Mexico City is very active some are less active they'll get together once or twice a year that sort of thing and they decide how they want to be involved what we do as a global organization is provide some resources you know, we provide the, the website and so forth. We provide the ability to communicate. And we put together programs not unlike this podcast that, uh, that allow the, the alumni around the world to engage uh, and get enrichment uh, that the individual chapters may or may not be able to, to be able to afford. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, they, uh, you know, in addition to this podcast, there's also webinars, videos, affinity groups, articles online, a whole lot of different uh, options for, for people to learn more. So if they do want to learn more, where can they find out uh, more details? All they need to do is go to PG Alums with an S, pgalums.com. Uh, anybody who has gotten one check from the Procter & Gamble company uh, is allowed to be a member. It's free to sign up. If you sign up, you can share your information. You connect with LinkedIn if you choose. You can limit the amount of information other people see, but it's a way for us to reach you uh, and a way for you to see what's going on around the world. Uh, you can select the chapter you want to updates on or pick them all. It's it's all up to you. Yeah, sounds fantastic. So for people to go check out pgalums.com. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet, Drew. Thank you so much. And now back to our show. As you look back, was there, you know, any kind of failure or thought something that you thought was maybe initially a roadblock or didn't turn out quite exactly like how you expected and what that then led to later? I don't remember. There there was nothing Part of being a Midwestern striver mm-hmm. <laughs> is that you take these kind of disappointments on board and, and you figure out how to get by them pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I've had a couple. I mean, the most notable was not getting the GE CEO job back in 1999. And uh, that was a career disappointment. And mm-hmm. I felt lousy for three or four days. but. Uh, and uh, but I'm I'm not a big contemplator and rejigger my life in light of kind of person. You know, I I'm more characterized by keep moving. Uh, ultimately, your your success or failure will be determined by how you feel about yourself, rather than how others feel about you at certain points in time. And keeping that faith in yourself uh, through the ups and downs and it's important to it's important to remember who you are during the ups too you're not nearly as good as you think you are and uh keeping that sense of self and and ultimate self-confidence is uh is the way you get through those things at least it's the way i got through them yeah it reminds me a little bit of you mentioned yeah the how you see yourself versus how others do it there's i think it's a mark twain quote that says you worry less about how other people think about you when you realize how little they do. <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, just that sense of people are focused. Yeah. So it's, but it's that, that mindset of you're the one constantly living with your decisions and things. And so, yeah. So speaking of that, like it's 1999, you are one of three potentially for this, for the role at GE that doesn't happen. You know, you said you took it, took a few days to kind of get through that. But what was one, what were those days like? Was it kind of commiseration with yourself? Was it kind of like, un, like unsure of why that was the case? And then how do you switch that? And how does that turn into becoming CEO of 3M? It was more, uh, Drew, I mean, I, I was old enough at that stage. I was 49, 50 years old. Uh, I was old enough to understand how these things happen. I mean, we're always making decisions about people uh, all the time. And it was more sort of a visceral reaction. It was more of a, I just felt lousy, emotionally down for two or three days and uh, just talked to my wife about it. I have a, I have a wonderful wife and a strong marriage, which uh, is helpful at a time like that. 
put it in perspective and then went out and uh, literally was through it, I would say, in three days. And, uh, but it was more of an emotional, visceral feeling than it was sort of a sorting out of my life. What did I do wrong? I mean, I'd, I'd known I'd done my best. I mean, I, I, I didn't have, nor do I have today, any regrets about any successes or failures I've had. I, I've just tried to do my best and tried the hardest I, I can at any point in time. And, and, and part of knowing you're doing that, it makes it easier to live with whatever happens. Yeah, I think that that's great perspective. And I I remember I saw uh, an astronaut speak, astronaut Mike, I can't remember his last name, but he was talking about when they were in space, they had a rule where you could be kind of upset for like 30 seconds. You were allowed like a pity party for 30 seconds if something went wrong. And then after that, you just had to move on. So your survival was yeah. kind of like based off of that. And so it sounds like a similar thing. If you gave yourself a little bit of time to to deal with the visceral experience of it, and then it was like, okay, what's what's next? I think that's a, a, an incredible lesson. And so then after leaving Boeing, you're still on a number of boards. You're a senior advisor with, uh, with CDR, this organization. So I guess my first question is like, is retirement not a thing? Like, it seems like, so like, what, what keeps you excited? What keeps you going with all the kind of work and advisory type roles that you're, you're doing now? Well, I, I think the... Uh... A piece of it's a refreshing change in the sense that, you know, I, I tend to be an advisor, a board member, a mentor, and it doesn't carry the, the weight of the 20 emails from Asia when you wake up in the morning and the 20 emails from Europe as you go to bed at night. <laughs> and it's, uh, but I stay busy. I think if you asked the question and you implied it in what you said, what do I enjoy the most out of all the things I'm doing? Probably the, the mentoring side of it, uh, it's sort of organically, I wouldn't call it a business. I'd call it an activity. In some cases, it's a business where I mentor young CEOs who are either in uh, difficult situations or who want the mentoring. And, uh, but uh, I enjoy it all. I mean, uh, CDNR is a private equity company. I chair a hospital system. I'm on the Kennedy Center board, a couple of think tanks. I mean, I, there's, there's a lot I'm doing. Yeah, well, it sounds like, I mean, I imagine each of those organizations are also happy to have your insight, your wisdom, the things that you've learned to, to give that perspective. And so I am mean, curious, what, what have you seen? How is the world different from when you were at 3M or even Boeing, you know, a few years ago? Because I know you said in some of your programs that there's, there's more of a blurring of business and politics that didn't exist before. Is that one of those changes? And what do you, and what do you mean by that kind of blurring? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you reach all the way back to when I started out in business, just to provide additional perspective in answering your question, uh, is, is that uh, it was in, in the 50s and 60s, it was and 70s, it was largely business leadership was an X's and O's kind of thing. You know, you, the right game plan, treat your people properly, motivate them well, have a culture that's functional. Today, there's that plus a lot more. and the lot more tends to be a blurring of the political environment and the business environment as we become a mature democracy. And I would also say digitization and globalization uh, are huge changes that have sort of uh, swept across 
uh, the business community as well as every other part of our community that have had big changes in people's lives. I mean, people, some people have kept up with the digital economy, others can't and haven't. That's very frustrating. Uh, globalization has thrown people out of jobs in some cases and, and the political, uh, the impingement of, the, of, of the, the political and the business. And, you know, it, a lot of that frustration drove the election of uh, our current president. It's uh, it's created a wave of uh, populism that that needs to be dealt with, and it's uh, and business leaders increasingly have to have the courage to not lose focus on running successful businesses, but not being naive enough to believe that a big business enterprise is immune from those kind of changes. You got to deal with them, and and your people need to see you dealing with. Them. Yeah, and that you know all of this work doesn't exist within a vacuum that you know, they all have kind of an impact in some way. And I remember seeing, uh, or I, I saw an interview or some that you had shared that, you know, having some, a little bit of a background in technology because of like what you talked about, that digitization, the globalization is, is valuable. And that's, you know, one of the things that I've always thought is that, you know, I wish every person went through a programming class, like kind of through school, because you learn, you know, strategic thinking things and an improv class, because you learn communication skills and, and things like that. But so from a technology background, how do, you know, in what ways do you see that leaders kind of need to have some of that technology? Is it actually going to school and having a degree in it? Is it more reading up about it? Is it reading certain books? How do you, how do you stay a top technology if you're a leader of an organization or a team? I don't think you have to be deep into it individually, uh, but I think you have to embrace it with your teams. Your teams will have experts, but you can't be afraid of it. You've got to lead it more aggressively than you lead anything else. I mean, I'm trying to think of an, of an example, but it's, uh, you know, back rooms. If you're running an insurance company, back rooms have been transformed by uh, AI, by data analytics. And back rooms can be managed by a third of the people that were managing the same back room 10 years ago through the use of data and communications. And, uh, and that takes courage to push that and make that happen and, and to understand the technology's potential uh, and be the first amongst your competitors to get to that more productive, more effective space. And uh, so you've got to understand the technology well enough to know its potential and to understand its risks. Because the two things you can do wrong as you embrace new technology, one is ignore it, okay, and be uncomfortable with it. And then the other one is embrace it too aggressively, don't understand the risks of implementing it, and ending up you know, taking three swings at something and losing the handle competitively in either case. So you have to understand it well enough to manage that. Yeah. And it sounds like similar to kind of how we, we started where you're talking about the importance of balance, whether that was, you know, balancing kind of ambition and focus or personal kind of success and striving versus effectiveness with the team uh, and having that balance of, you know, never adopting it and kind of being, you know, scared of it and saying that's not going to impact us versus like two hands on that, that balance, it seems, uh, you know, comes back to to that as well. And so uh, we're going to, we have a couple of questions that are just more for kind of rapid fire, get to know you even a little bit more. So I'm curious, uh, one, is there a fact that comes to mind that uh, surprises most people, a fact about you that surprises most people? 
I read a lot. And I think sometimes people are surprised by that. What is a lot? Because I mean, there's some people who are like, I haven't read a book since I graduated high school. So a, a minute a day would be a lot. <laughs> no, 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 no. I sort of a steady diet of sort of whodunits and, and drama and biographies. I tend to be one of these guys who's always picking at a book and, and occasionally over refers to them in conversations. Maybe that's <laughs> okay. Has, has there been a book that you've been over referring to or one that's like kind of stood out from uh, that you've read recently that is top of mind? Well, there's a lot. I mean, I think uh, Chernow's Washington was something I read, I'd say, six months ago, which is one of these long slogs through. I mean, it's on a Kindle, it's 2,500 pages and it's. Uh, and it has got more facts and figures. But this guy was one hell of a leader and was well portrayed factually by this great biographer, uh, Ron Chernow. And, and uh, uh, that, that book had a real impression on me. Washington as a man had a real impression on me. Okay, very cool. I'll have to, to check that out. And uh, so you are you were born in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, which the only thing that I know about Providence, because I, I love milkshakes. I'm obsessed with milkshakes. So the only thing I know about Providence is there they call milkshakes cabinets. I'm not entirely sure why, but I did learn that. But I'm curious. So are you a, are you a sweets person? What's your kind of like go-to from a food perspective to relax or enjoy or celebrate something? Well, I think, you know, I, I am a sweets person. I have, uh, and I'm such a sweet person that, I, that I've, I've developed fairly disciplined approach to eating, <laughs> which I try to keep up with. But I tend to like all foods that are, are not particularly good for you. So I over-rotate on uh, being disciplined about it with occasional lapses that, with uh, crinkly uh, candy wrappers that I find next to my <laughs> bed in some hotel room somewhere. And you're like, how did that happen? Oh, yeah. It can mm -hmm. happen. It can happen. I'm not quite there yet. I like if I see a cookie, if I'm in an event and I like don't eat a cookie, I'm like, I, I should reward myself for my discipline of not eating a cookie by eating a cookie. Uh, so hopefully I'll get to that that level of discipline. I like it. OK, so to wrap up, just one last question as we think about kind of going forward. What is one final piece of advice or even potentially a challenge that you'd leave for the next generation? You're advising a lot of people already, so maybe you already give this challenge, but what's one thing you would leave for the next generation to keep in mind? I think this, um, this notion of challenging yourself early, surrounding, finding the best organization early, irrespective of, its, of the industry it's in, irrespective of the products it sells or finding the best group of people early in your career. So you get used to a competitive environment and you find out what good is and, uh, and you become more competitive yourself. And then you can adjust and find the, the industry or the company or the not-for-profit or whatever it is. You can find the specific thing you're interested in later. That's, I would say that's first. And back to this thing you and I were talking about earlier, uh, this notion of the scorecard is measured externally, but the way you're going to get to success on that scorecard is satisfying yourself and, and meeting your own standards and involve your wife or your partner in that. Uh, make sure you're together on what is important in your life and uh, work 
life balance will fall out of that discussion, by the way, and it's different for everybody and it has to be discovered. It's not a work-life balance is not a blueprint that everybody follows. It's, it's discoverable only if you work at it. And, uh, but understand what, what is important to you on the inside, because that's what's, that's what's sustainable over time. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fantastic. I like that piece that it's discovering, right? It's, it's not, you know, it's not prescription from someone like it's not exactly 57.5 hours of work each week will make it happen, right? No, it's discovering what works for you, for your, your family situation, your current situation, your role. So I love that discovery piece. Cause it also speaks to the aspect that it's, it's not going to magically appear that there's some work involved on your side to, to get that. So I think that's a fantastic insight to, to leave with people both, you know, regardless of where they happen to be in their career. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the P&G alumni podcast. Uh, I know people take tremendous value away from our conversation today. So thanks so much for joining us. Delighted to talk with you, Drew. And uh, it's nice to talk to you all. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. As leaders of people, I think a lot of it starts from the culture that you create and the environment that you create. I think if you as a leader can demonstrate how you are prioritizing your time, sort of driving towards awesome deliverables and ideas and thoughts and results and conversations that you're more focused on, maybe that outcomes that you're driving versus necessarily the hours that you're putting in. So some of it is just making sure that as leaders too, we're rewarding the right thing. It's more about the outcome, the conversation, the quality of the conversation versus maybe the hours that you're working. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.